No, I thank you for the opportunity to be in front of you today. And today's a, what we're doing is we're con- second week of the series of overcoming obstacles in our life, and we're going to look at overcoming guilt. Uh, like Chris said, if you're human, you've probably had or still are dealing with some form of guilt in your life. In a lot of ways, that's what holds us back. But as I was researching on this, and what is guilt? There's actually several different definitions of guilt, but a noun version of guilt is the fact of being guilty for something. You know, having committed or specified or implied an offense or crime. Well, the verb tense changes quite a bit, and this is the word of the word guilt. It's a self-conscious emotion, perhaps embarrassment, whereas an article from Psychology Today stated, feeling responsible or regretful for a perceived offense, whether it's real or imaginary. And guilt can also be a part of the grief reaction. So there's all kinds of different ways of looking at guilt. However, what we're going to look at today is going to be the guilt that can lead to repentance. You know, we've all experienced some form of guilt in our lives. To what degree differs differently between each person and each circumstance or each situation Guilt's always different. We may look at someone who's going through something and they're not feeling guilt. And we, we say, why are you even worrying about that? Well, sometimes the same guilt we're feeling, somebody can look at right at us and say, why are, you, why are you feeling that way? You have no reason to feel that way. But guilt is something that is inside of us, inside of yourself, that is something personal between you. We're going to look at today instead of this second week of overcoming obstacles of overcoming guilt. Go ahead and your Bibles turn to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And the sin is always before me. Against you. You only have I sinned. And done what is evil. In your sight. So you are right in your verdict. And justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time. My mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness. Even in the womb. You taught me wisdom. In that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take away, or take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to me. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. On my lips, on my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice where I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings whole, offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Very interesting psalm here. So much of it you've probably heard at one point or another, whether it's a could be on a on a plaque or on a picture or something like that. One of them that really uh, stands out to me is created me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I heard that many, many years ago. One thing about this psalm is it's from our King David. And just to kind of like quick history of this, this was written about a thousand years before Christ ever came. And one thing that King David is saying during the middle of this time that really stands out is he understands right there that the sacrifice during a time when people had a sacrifice, whether it was a sin offering or burnt offering or what kind of offering it was, he said, you do not delight in sacrifice where I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, comma, oh God, is a broken spirit. David understood that repentance. He understood that what God can do, that it wasn't from an act, which we'll later touch on. Anything he could do, it was for something inside of his heart. We see from this psalm, it's a beautiful rendition of a follower of God asking for forgiveness and mercy. But, st but verse 3 stands out and points to the guilt and shame that David felt when writing this psalm. And what he says in verse 3 again is, For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. When something is always before you, that is guilt. You know, King David was a very interesting man for many reasons. He was one of my heroes of the Bible, perhaps because we know more about King David from, from an entire scope of his life than we do a lot of other people. We know when he was a young guy, we, we even know about when he died, roughly 70, 75 years old. We know a lot about him, and one of the reasons why I do is called the Book of Psalms. The Book of Psalms, of course, not all of it written, was written by David, but a good chunk of it, and it really just shows you King David's heart. There's one thing you can say about King David. He had a heart that was amazing and very much open, and he bled out onto the pages what he was writing, his love for God and what God can do. And that grace, which we'll touch about also. But we know of him being a young man attending to his father's sheep. This is the first time we really hear about him. And the, he was the youngest of eight. And at one point, he even mentioned killing a lion and a bear while saving a lamb. When the prophet Samuel was sent to Jesse to anoint the replacement for King Saul, it was David, the youngest, that was chosen. And if you remember from Scripture, Samuel was the prophet at the time, and he went to Jesse's house. Jesse had these eight sons, and he had every one of the sons walk in front of him. And it was after the seventh son that God told Samuel, you're looking at the physical appearance of how you would think it would be the king. But I look at a man's heart. He asked for the eighth, and here came David as a young boy, and he was the one that was chosen, anointed to be the next king. And also, that scripture in the New Testament that, that David was a man after God's own heart comes from this passage right here in this particular time when David was first anointed as a young man. And then, then from there we know about the Goliath story. 
that when he went to take bread to his brothers in a war, you had all of Israel on one side of them, this valley, and then you had the Philistines on the other. And every morning, or once a day, this nine-foot-tall Goliath would come out from the Philistines and challenge Israel. And it, like a little game, he played with them. If one man could come out and defeat me, well, the war's over. We'll serve you, Israel. Of course, no one dared stand up to Goliath. And Goliath was also not just a scary guy, but he also had a, a pretty bad vain mouth. And that's what caught David's attention when David went there just to take bread to his older brothers who were in this war. It was the words that Goliath was saying. David obviously stood up. We know he was a young guy for one reason in Scripture kind of points out that he went to put on King Saul's armor. You all heard this before. To go out and fight Goliath. And what was the one thing he couldn't do? He couldn't even walk. He couldn't even move in this armor. I know Saul was a, probably a, much bigger than him. But that tells me that King David was a young guy. One thing about David is to see from this is that he sought the Lord his whole life. Even as a young kid. And from there, of course, the Bible clearly states he was a fierce warrior in battle. and Didn't back down from any man because he knew the Lord was always with him. But the reason I stated all those was for a reason. All these attributes of David. Because he wasn't just a man that expressed his emotions from the book of Psalms. This was a man that was also a fierce warrior. Even from a youth of saving a lamb or a sheep from a lion and a bear, he was always had this very tough side to him. He was very much a strong man that feared nothing but the Lord. However, there was a period of time he did not fear the Lord, and that's what we're going to look at today. David is the center of this message because of the immense guilt he came under at one point. To understand the guilt David has, we'll summarize Second Samuel. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. I'm not going to read it verse by verse, but Second Samuel chapter 11. Here we find our king some years later. And one of the things that's very important to see in Scripture is every word is there for a reason and placed there for a reason. The author of 2 Samuel, we don't believe it was Samuel because he didn't, couldn't have wrote about his own death. Whether it was the prophet Nathan or Gad or somebody, we know it had to be somebody that was very close to David to know all of these things and to know David's heart. So more than likely it was probably one of those, but it doesn't matter. But whoever wrote this really points out the significance of what's going on just by the words he uses. It starts off in chapter 11, in the spring at a time when kings go off to war, David sent out his people, but at the end of verse 1, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, this is more than likely what setting the stage, opening David up for a problem that's about to happen. This man that, like I said, was a fierce warrior, but this particular time he decided to stay home. And just to get to the story is when he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Now we've all heard this story before, so don't have to go into that. But researching this, there's, there, there's 
talk about implications of things. You know, when you're a little kid, your mother or grandmother, like I had, would say, you know, you tell one lie, then now you're going to tell multiple lies and multiple lies, and then you'll tell so many lies you can't remember what you said and who you said what to, and next thing you know, you're found out pretty quick. This was, uh, Bathsheba wasn't just any person. She was married to one of David's most mighty men. Yep, David did have a group of 30 to 37, depends on how you read it, close, fierce warriors, and that he was actually one of them as well. Uh, these were not kind of people that were just um, hide at all. These were some of the fiercest people. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was one of David's closest soldiers. Well, it gets a little worse from there. He was, she was also the daughter of another one of David's 30 or so closest warriors. And she was also the granddaughter of one of David's counselors who would later betray him, perhaps for this reason right here. A lot of implications of this particular sin. You know, obviously this comes in a time period where David wasn't living right for, for God or with God. And this wasn't just a fluke sin that someone commits by error. You know, this event and the ones that transpire, they cover many months. And as you can see in Scripture, will have long and lasting consequences. Now we pick up a story where Bathsheba's pregnant. And David now in his heart. He's got to cover this sin. And as you can read through in 2 Samuel 11, you can see there's no guilt being mentioned. David's not feeling guilty of anything. What he has to do now is protect himself and try to cover this. So that snowball I mentioned going downhill is now an avalanche and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger for David. You see, and I'm going to read this in 2 Samuel 11, 11. Bathsheba's pregnant, and David tries to cover sin. He has Uriah come home from the battlefield to go home to his wife, and Uriah would not do that. Next day, David sees Uriah, that he didn't go home. And in verse 11, Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents. So my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. I thought about this. I said, perhaps the loyalty that Uriah had for his king was the same loyalty that David was lacking for his king, our Lord. So it gets worse. When Uriah doesn't leave the king's presence, David then tries to get him drunk. Maybe I can get him drunk and he'll go home. At this particular time, you can see that with what was going on with David is that fear at this point was overruling any conscience, any self-conscience, or any guilt whatsoever. This was pure fear. And if that wasn't bad enough, King David wrote a death sentence out in a letter handed it to Uriah. Uriah was obviously unknowing what was in that letter. 
and was sent back to the battlefield and told to give that letter to Joab, the commander, unknowing that it was his own death sentence in there. Basically what happened was he was ordered to the front line and when they'd come under their fiercest battle, other people were to pull back and leave your eye there. And even when news came back to David of Uriah's death, there's no mention of any kind of mourning, still no mention of guilt. And David finally covers, and I say that not being very serious, but David finally covers this moral and ridiculous set of events by marrying Bathsheba. So now he thinks it's all taken care of. I couldn't hide it. There's no way I could have convinced Uriah to do this. Now Uriah's dead. So now I can marry her. She's already pregnant. Nobody will know the difference. One thing that really caught my attention was Joab knew something was going on. And all these troops that were ordered back to have Uriah murdered, they had to know what was going on. And if that wasn't, when they seen that King David married Uriah's wife, then they probably figured out what was going on. This situation that he got himself in, and it would not end just at this either. It would keep going on and on and on. You know, it's safe to say that uh, David's unrestrained sin led to guilt or perhaps to being the fear of being shamed. When researching this, you see the two words, guilt and shame, come around quite a lot together. But really and truly, they're, they're two totally different words with two totally different meanings. I was thinking that you hear people now these days been forced to apologize. Think about that. Forced to apologize. Is that really an apology? You know, we're, we're guilty of it with our kids. Oh, you, you smacked him. Tell him you're sorry. If you think about it, all they really do is say, well, I'm sorry. Doesn't mean they're sorry. They don't have the, any kind of guilt. But in this case, the word shame means the shame that comes from being found out. That's what King David was worried about, was this shame. That can lead to guilt. It's also safe to say that David improperly abused the power that God gave him. So to make matters even worse, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, just one chapter over. The prophet Nathan, one of David's closest people, would have to point some of these things out and we'll read it to David while he was in this stagnant and degenerate immoral state. So in chapter 12, now the Lord sent Nathan to David and pay attention, the Lord sent him. So the Lord already told Nathan, so now he's coming to the king this particular time here and the king thinks everything's fine. Married Bathsheba, everything's fine. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. But a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it. 
for the one who had come to him. Verse 5, And David, when he heard this, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for what the lamb, he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You're the man. This is what the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of God or the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down your eye the head tight with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. If you read on, which I encourage you to do this week, you'll see that all these things will come about. From this you can also see that David's going to have, like the Lord says here, the sword would never leave his house. He would end up having a son rape his daughter. He would have a son kill another son. He'd have another son that tried to raise up and kill him. The sword never left his house. Even in death, he didn't leave his house. All from this one sin. But it took this to get to David to understand how he had mishandled all his guilt in which it worked. But it points us to the grace of God in Psalm 51. Now Psalm 32, I need you to flip over there as well. There's two Psalms that kind of go hand in hand. Obviously Psalm 51 we've already read and then there's Psalm 32. And these are two of the confessional giants in the book of Psalms. When someone tries to get something off their, off their chest, they're opening their heart to God, talking about that, that guilt when you can feel something. That's what David's talking about in Psalm 51, we've already read. But Psalm 32, which was written after Psalm 31, or 51, and it coincides with that, but this will help tie everything I just mentioned together. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And in verse 5, pay attention. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. You know, we can harp on David and say it's a shame it took the prophet Nathan and the word of God through the prophet Nathan to, to get to him. What we're looking at here is once it did. And David knew exactly how to go to God and that God did not, would not just forgive the sin but also the guilt that comes from that. And we forget that all the time. And you know, how can we, um, 
pray and ask God to forgive us of our sins, but then every day we carry the guilt. That's just like, God, you want to forgive it, but I don't want to let go of it. I don't, I don't want to let go. If I'm just rehashing that every day in my life, it's something I've struggled with too. You know, if this message doesn't fall on anybody's heart today, it definitely fell on mine. To let things go. Psalm 32, 5. It's one verse of the Bible you should definitely mark and come back to and forgive the guilt of my sin. You know, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. I think here Paul's talking about guilt, that it leaves no regret from repentance. You know, can worldly sorrow uh, be guilt? I think so. Definitely. You know, why then should we hold on to guilt? If our Lord can forgive us, why can't we forgive ourselves? Because sometimes that's the hardest thing to do, right? Is to forgive ourselves. We forgive other people, but it's so hard to forgive ourselves. When you can't forgive yourself, you carry guilt. Paul, in Hebrews 8.12, restates from Jeremiah chapter 31, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Why then should we hold on to guilt? You know, what King David asked of God along with forgiveness is, is grace. You know, Mark spoke about grace last week you know, concerning overcoming doubt. Without grace, we would have nothing, nothing at all. We would not have any hope. We would not have any desire for God's mercy or desire for God's word. We wouldn't have a future, promises of heaven. You know, we'd be living a defeated life. Every day you'd wake up. You might as well just look at the mirror and say, I'm defeated. The one thing that you can have as a Christian is grace. And grace is what keeps us going. If I could say maybe there's one word that to sum up the Bible in all 1,189 chapters and 66 books, it's grace. Grace is stretched through the whole book. You know, what is grace? That professor one time said, Grace is God giving man the exact opposite of what he deserves. Man deserves condemnation, but he receives eternal life. Man deserved hell, but he received heaven. In the Mercer Dictionary of the Bible, it also says that grace is the sheer self-giving love of, of God towards suffering and sinful humanity. What a God we serve. I noticed this morning in the first service, Patty sang a song, unbelievable, just soaked with grace. The songs you were singing just a few minutes ago, soaked with grace. It's all about grace. Everything is about grace. I believe we forget the sovereignty of our God. Many of us believe that God cannot forgive certain things we've done, even though the Bible says he will. But we focus much of our attention to that punishing God that some people say that he is rather than the, the merciful God and the God of grace that he is. You know, although God will forgive the sin and may not always remove the consequence as we've seen with David, he will provide enough grace to sustain us. And that's exactly what he did. 
and he will also do for Apostle Paul in the New Testament when Apostle Paul had that metamorphic thorn in his side we don't know for sure exactly what it was but God told Paul that the grace he given enough grace to sustain him and he will do the same for us today you know the important thing to do with any guilt like with anything else go to God about it let him help you and don't let another day of guilt hold you back that guilt it just you're really not letting God forgive that sin if you're holding on to the guilt make today the day that you turn your life to Jesus and experience God's abundant grace and everything let's pray Heavenly Father Lord thank you for your word Lord thank you Father for your word of truth Lord how all of your Bible Father where it's Old Testament or whatever Lord it all points to your grace and Jesus Lord there's things that we have problems with in our lives that we fail to come to you about Lord I believe grace I'm sorry, guilt is definitely one of those Lord you tell us to forgive others but we sometimes can't even forgive ourselves Lord if you can then why shouldn't we let go of it Father, I just can't thank you enough, Lord, for your word, for your Bible, to hear your word being read, Father, what a gift, and to be able to read your word, Lord, it's the same, it's what a gift. Lord, we're just full of all your gifts, grace, the free gift, your Bible, Lord, we are so blessed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.